we ended up uh, creating a business, Continuum Textiles, which was uh, representing socially and environmentally responsible textiles into the outdoor industry. And this is before it became a trendy thing to do. So we spent a lot of time beating down doors of about into some of the biggest brands on the planet, Nike, Adidas, Reebok, Lululemon, Marks and Spencer, all those guys about how to do better in textile production. And it wasn't only how to do better, it was that we actually had factories and facilities in Australia, Indonesia, India, China, Hong Kong that could deliver products. Welcome to Boots Off, Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business, a show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David, and I'll be your host for the show. Good day, everybody, and welcome again to the podcast. Just before I introduce our guest today, I want to give a plug for a very important fundraiser we're doing here at AgriMaster. We've embarked on the goal of raising $22,000 to fund a room for two years at Ronald McDonald House at the Perth Children's Hospital. This is vital accommodation for rural and regional families who've ended up in Perth with a critically ill child and need to stay close to the hospital for an extended period of time. So if you can, please give generously to our fundraiser and I'll put a link to the show notes down below. So thank you. Now, in this episode of the podcast, I'm talking to an old mate of mine from Cogenup, Stuart Adams. Stu's a farm boy from the uh, Broomhill side of Cogenup. And soon after finishing his degree, Stu embarked on a mission to add value to Australian wool that saw him working with some of the biggest brands on the planet, like Nike, Adidas, Reebok, H&M, Lululemon, and Marks and Spencers. Stu and his wife, a Canadian from Quebec, then ended up starting a sustainable fibre consultancy business that had them travelling the world advising uh, woolen mills and cotton mills on how to produce sustainable fibres for big brands. Stu eventually decided to move his farming operation from Cogenup in Western Australia to Shawville, Quebec in Canada. So we talk about what he's had to learn about farming in a place where he's under snow for half the year and the winters can get down to minus 30. Um, we talk about how do you start machinery at that temperature and and the different planting um, systems you have to have to manage snow and frost associated with that type of weather. This is a wide-ranging conversation and we talk about everything from the disconnection between brands and producers and, and the gap between what they say and what they do and the struggles um, stew had over the years to explain that and to get real action between brands and consumers. We talk about how hard it is to prove you're a sustainable farmer and Stu's vision for a simpler measure of sustainability based on soil health measurements and not based on a thousand individual trackable behaviours. Stu has had a very varied and interesting agricultural career that continues to evolve and change. And there's not many people who can say they moved their whole farm business to a different country. It was really great catching up with Stu and it was incredibly interesting to talk about someone with a such a diverse agricultural career and this can be an inspiration to many other people who think there's only one track in agriculture. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Now over to Stu. Welcome to the podcast all the way from Quebec, Stu. 
Thanks, mate. Nice to uh, hear another Australian accent. I don't get many of them in this part of the world. No. It's, um, so uh, what time is it there, mate? Uh, we're at 8 o'clock uh, in the evening on Thursday night. So we're exactly 12 hours behind you, but we're uh, on the antipode, which means I couldn't get any further away on the planet from where I grew up if I really tried. I'm on the exact opposite end of the planet from where we started in Kojano. So, mate, if you uh, drilled a hole straight through one of your back paddocks, you'd probably hit Koji, you reckon? Pretty close to it, right? Pretty close to it. So let's get into that, mate. So you're, uh, so tell us your story. You're a, you're a farm boy from Kojano up in Western Australia, and now you're a, a farmer in, is it Shawville? Shawville, Quebec? Shawville, Quebec. We, we miss you. We miss you. We miss you. And your French is still pretty rubbish, I hear. That's about it. That's about all I've got. <laughs> I do have a little bit more. I can swear very well in French, believe me, but uh, as far as the uh, polite conversation, I don't get much farther than uh, bonjour. Before we get into how you, how you ended up um, running a farm business in Canada instead of Kojina, let's talk about what is, so explain where you are. So most there's might be a bunch of listeners who've been um, to different areas of um, Canada on on trips or either on whether that be farming or ski holidays. But explain Shawville. So if I if I drove from the airport, um, wherever the closest airport is, and I drove to your farm, what am I going to see? What am I going to see along the way? What's the towns look like? What are people doing? So can you just paint us a picture of Shawville? Well, most people when they come to Canada. A bit like Australia. Most people that come to Australia hit the East Coast. Most people that come to Canada hit the West Coast because that's the Rockies, that's the mountains, that's the skiing. There's a lot of Canada which people don't get to see and uh, where we are would be one of those places. However, it's a very beautiful place. There is so much water here. So in Quebec, our biggest natural resource would be water. Um there are so many natural lakes, rivers. It's, it's really a spectacular province of Canada. Um, very old as far as landscape, a bit like Western Australia, where uh, a lot of the mountains are no longer mountains, they're hills. So here we have uh, a lot of eroded hills, a lot of glacial landscapes. So where our farms are, we are more of a glacial-influenced area. So the glaciers move through and uh, churned up all the rocks in clay, so we have lots of clay-based soils. That's just a bit of an overview of the area, but uh, you asked, like, where are we? Well, Ottawa is the capital of Canada, and Ottawa is much like Canberra. It has a bit more of a pulse than Canberra, I must say, but uh, no disrespect to Canberra, but that is the way it is. Um, so we are about an hour west of Ottawa um, on the border of Quebec and Ontario. And I have an English-speaking community, fortunately, um, but there is not many. I think uh, out of the 45,000 farmers in Quebec, there's about 2,000 English registered English-speaking farmers. So almost all, and there's been more language laws imposed on us uh, in the last 12 months, which is further restricting the amount of English that we can get through government. So a lot of services we, we have offered Previous been offered previously through the government are no longer available in English. So the rest of Canada, the, so from just for those of you who don't know, so because of the, is it the province? Is that what I call it? The province or state of Quebec? It's a province. It's a province, yes. Yeah. So 
but it's a entirely French-speaking province, um, which means throughout Canada there is there is dual language laws. Like everything has to be done both in English and French. Is that correct? Yeah. So Canada is recognised as a bilingual country, um, and so all uh, certainly government um, publications have to be available in English and French. And if you're ever exporting from Australia to Canada, all of your labelling uh, must be in English and French. So to kind of, you know, long story short, I'm sure we'll get here. Um, I ended up in Canada through manufacturing our own Merino wool thermal underwear back in the late nineties and exporting it to Canada. So it was made in Australia from wool from Kojanup and then, uh, uh, it was exporting it to one of the large outdoor, um, retail brands in, uh, in Canada. And I learned a lot about having to export product out of Australia or importing into Canada at that time. And the bilingual issue was certainly a challenge and still is a challenge for me. <laughs> so, okay, so now let's talk about the differences. So uh, let's talk about this journey, mate. So that that's a really good touch. So let's take it back. So your farm now, can you explain what you farm and what's typical for the area and what you do? So tell us about your farm. So a lot of the... Um, listeners do everything. You know, we've got a lot of wheat or grain growers out there, a bunch of livestock growers. So explain what you grow in Canada and is it much different to what you're growing in Kojana? Well, typically not. I mean, our growing season here is in the summer. So our winter time, it's around, and it can be down to minus 30 and minus 35 degrees. And I can tell you, if you ever tried to operate a piece of equipment at minus 30 and below, or even minus 20 and below, it ain't fun. Nothing wants to work, everything breaks, and it is no fun fixing something broken in those temperatures. So we will be harvesting corn in minus 20 to minus 25. It's actually not bad harvesting, provide, providing nothing breaks, but you just don't want to get out of the combine. Um, you know, the difference is uh, we plant about the same time, so we plant around May. So once the snow is gone, we're uh, flat out just, trying to get onto the fields as quickly as possible because our growing season is fairly short. So our spring starts in May um, and we're coming into our harvest time now. So it's September and there's already lads starting to harvest soybeans now. So it's not much of a growing window. So the earlier you get it in, um, obviously the earlier you can take it off and not have to fight the winter as it comes in. Yeah, so you're, you're planting before the snow comes in. Is that what you're doing? No, no, we're planting straight after the snow goes. So you've got to wait for the fields okay. to dry out because the fields will usually have a couple of feet of snow on them. Um, so it's good skidooing, good uh, kite surfing, if you kite boarding, if you want to get into it. So one of the first things I did when I came here was board a skidoo because I'm not going to have a farm with several feet of snow over the fields and not have a skidoo. So, so we have to wait for the snow to go, and obviously an early spring is a better one, but we also don't want to be planting too early because um, we can have early frosts. So we've had several occasions where uh, we've had an early spring, so the snow's gone by mid to late April and been out planting, and then we've had minus 5 and minus 6 degrees come in during uh, May, which has knocked over all the corn and destroyed all the soybeans. So predominantly corn, soybean, canola at all, or just uh, corn, soybean? Well, Canada's the largest producer of canola, but not where we are. So where we are, um, we're very much beef and dairy. 
So it's Midlake, Brunswick Junction and, you know, Bunbury and, and then all the way down and that belt, uh, Donnybrook. That, that's the sort of area that we are. Um, not a lot of cash crop. And when I say refer to cash crops, I really predominantly cash crop is your, your corn, soybean, and wheat, small grains. Um, as our growing season is through the summer, it's very it's more tropical here in the in the mm-hmm. summer. So you know you get to thirty thirty five degrees, and most people are melting, but the humidity is like ninety percent. So it's it's you know it feels like around mid forties. Um, doesn't worry me too much, but tends to worry a lot of Canadians. Um, but what it does do is the bugs, like the bugs here are amazing. You reckon the bad up in the Kimberleys, wait till you come here. There's nothing like it. It's, I've been in twilight or dusk trying to fix machinery here and you can't. You've got to down tools and run for the truck and get out of here because you are being eaten. Um, so it's very tropical. Things grow very fast. You can almost see the corn growing once it's growing. Um, you know, this year has been a very good year. We've had rain almost every three or four days. So our farm, we we run a couple of thousand acres, which is quite big. An average farm in this area is about 100 to 150 acres. So what I did when I first came here was part of my consultancy, consultancy business in textiles. Once we finished uh, working out how hard it was to run a merino wool business, I um, with my wife at the time, we started uh, consulting in socially and environmentally responsible textiles. So we did that for many years. Um, I got a little bit sick of the traveling. And when we came to Ottawa to be closer to Anne's parents uh, with the children, the opportunity came up to buy some farmland here. It's very cheap. I could buy it cheaper than Kojanov, but it was... Uh, very good dairy land. Like you'd see it, the, the land was producing well, but uh, there'd been no money invested in it. So this is talking Brunswick Junction 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of uh, very old farms, too small for kids to come back to. There's no point investing money in those old buildings. So they just were left. And what we were doing was buying up 100 to 150 acre farms and tearing fence lines down and tree lines down, which had been there for 150 years, and uh, turning them all into one field. So one farm became one field. And a lot of what we do here, because our season is so short, everything has to be going your own way. So there's a lot of drainage done here, uh, a lot of tile drainage work because of the snow and the snow and the, the amount of rain we have. And the heavy soils, we're on some very heavy blue clays here, heavy clays, and that'll range down to loams, medium loams, and then sand all over the place because we're not far from the river, so we see a lot of uh, certainly boulders the size of half the size of a bulldozer in the middle of the field, which are old river boulders. Wow. You look in the sky and think, well, it must have come from the sky, but it's actually a river boulder. But, um, you know, the land has got some very interesting – history to it but a lot of our work has been purely uh just cleaning up fields uh getting fertilizer land back into production drainage in so we've done all this internally so i've learned how to do our all our own tile drainage farm drainage and what tile drainage is it's basically putting perforated plastic pipe under the ground to grade 
to take the water out of the top. Uh, we'll keep the water table down, actually. Um, we'll keep it from coming up. So you're managing the, the water, uh, table through placing this, uh, strategic, uh, pipe every 30 to 40 feet. Um, and you just got to learn that a lot water just runs downhill. So it's like, like a more engineered version of what we were doing, um, on farm in the, uh, 90s, Stu, with grade banks and, you know, all the, all that sort of work we we're doing. I know in Kojak we we're doing it. And the contour, the levy banks, the contour banks. Yeah. But in this way, at least it's under the ground. So you, you don't have to drive around contour banks, which is such a pain in the butt. Especially if you're out roo shooting, remember you'd uh, launch over one of those and <laughs> people off the back of the ute. Yeah, I know. So at least with um, the the tile, and it's very sophisticated. We do it all ourselves, and it's expensive. It costs you around a thousand to twelve hundred dollars an acre to mm-hmm. install this stuff. But uh, by doing it ourselves, we can do it for almost half that. But the yield, obviously, the investment. It's a bit like um, a lot of the soil amelior- amelioration. I can't even say that word. Amelioration done in in um in areas of the wheat belt um you know very expensive to do but the the yield and the production uh, benefits are, are worth the investment over the long term is that is that true it's it's one of your best returns on investment you get um it usually allows you to get back on the onto the field several weeks earlier and you're not getting equipment bogged and stuck and leaving wheel ruts everywhere and um they're actually doing a lot of work now with uh managing the water runoff out of the field with gates, uh, internet-connected gates, so that they can actually hold a water level in the field because, you know, there is a lot of climate weather weather pattern changing now. So why send all that water out of the field when you can hold some of it back for the drier times? Yeah, so it's a bit like a um, form of irrigation, backup irrigation almost. Yeah, it's reverse irrigation almost. It's, it's very interesting what's going on, and especially with some of the uh, issues with phosphate uh, leaching down in the US, they're able to now control entire catchment areas using these internet connected gates um, and slowing up runoff, which is uh, really interesting. Anyway, we, we haven't got to that level. It's, the amount of money you can keep throwing at this stuff is just never ending. And, you know, whereas where I'm a business that's only been farming here for 10 years, and 10 years ago, I'd never seen a corn planter, never seen a corn dryer knew nothing about what we were facing. So, and, you know, we, we are here now. We, we've invested heavily in agricultural technology. So all of our um, equipment is John Deere and all very recent equipment. Cost me a fortune. It's all connected. All counts every seed that goes into the ground. All counts every drop of fertilizer that goes on. But I still can't make it pay for itself. But I get nice colored pictures at the end of the day. Um, but it's, you know, it's been a very interesting journey, uh, of learning about, um, well, and just being part of this, but I guess my bet, my big end game here is that, uh, initially I saw it as a good investment. Farmland here was, is highly productive. You know, we are dealing with feet of topsoil instead of marginal topsoil, like you put back in coaching up. Um, I'm. And now we have we run our own trucks, so we take uh, corn or soybean straight from the field to port, which is an hour and a half away. And that port either goes straight to the US or into Europe. When you're talking ports, you're talking river ports, aren't you? Is that correct? Not 
ocean ports? Yeah, so this is on the St. Lawrence, but the St. Lawrence is a major seaway which goes out to the Atlantic. Um, so it's it's said it's about an hour and a half away from the from the farm. So when you're looking at bases, we talk bases. So your bases is really how far you are away from the Atlantic, and the closer you are to the Atlantic, the more you get paid. Um, so we're in a very good position. You know, back in Koji, it was I can't remember how much it was costing us to get at the port per ton, but then it's got to get on a ship and go to the other side of the planet. Whereas mm. here it just goes to the other side of the river. So, you know, you're not losing very much at all in, uh, in transport. So it, it's a, it's a very good location to farm. Um, when I started farming here, I bought all my money up from Australia and that was at a time where one Aussie dollar was buying one, one ten US. So, so let's drill down on that, Stu. So you were farming in a, you know, you're in a nice part of Koji, right? So you're about yeah. 10Ks out of town towards Broom Hill. Um, you know, nice sheep country, nice cropping country. Um, so let's just take one step back a bit. And so why? So how did you go from this beautiful farm in Kojina to moving the whole operation to Canada? You were talking about the wool business, so you better, um, so the uh, Continuum Textile, so you better drill down a bit on that and um, explain to people, you know, you know, how this journey happened and how'd you get there and why you made these decisions? Well, I was always very passionate. Once we left Muresk, I was always very passionate about getting beyond the farm gate, you know, linking that, uh, doing better at the farm and finding a customer which would accept that and pay you a little bit more for doing so. And so that's when we started messing around with um, taking merino wool and converting it into uh, thermal underwear. And that was based off my Excapades over to Mount Hotham after, uh, you know, finishing planting and off we went, off I went to, uh, have some fun in the snow and realizing that polypropylene really sucked as a thermal underwear. And then you were part of this, of course. And we came across the fellow from Melbourne that was making this wool and we thought, right. Ash, his name was. That's yeah. right. Mathedia, I think. Um, and so here's an opportunity to, to look and explore about connecting the farm to a customer. So I ran with that idea for many years. Um, cost me a lot of money, burned a lot of money, learned a lot of lessons and didn't make a lot. But uh, And eventually shut that down in the early 2000s because at that time the Australian wool industry thought wool into the outdoor industry wasn't a good idea. Um, so we weren't getting a lot of support. and it was, it was hard, very capital intensive. We had to own the wool from the farm gate all the way through to the retail, which just couldn't it was such a difficult thing to float um so i ended up that's where i met my wife and during that that business and we ended up uh creating a business continuum textiles which was uh representing socially and environmentally responsible textiles into the outdoor industry and this is before it became a trendy thing to do so we spent a lot of time beating down doors about into some of the biggest um, brands on the planet, Nike, Adidas, Reebok, Lululemon, Marks and Spencer, all those guys about how to do better in their textile production. And it wasn't only how to do better, as that we actually had factories and facilities in Australia, Indonesia, India, China, Hong Kong, um, that could deliver products 
but it was at a time where cents were worth more than feeling good. So I remember very clearly working with Levi's from, from near on maybe two years, I think, in developing a, a cotton program for their jeans. And everything was good until it came down to having to pay like, I don't know, it was five cents or 10 cents per unit on a pair of jeans more to get a socially and environmentally responsible pair of jeans. And we got that often. It became difficult to keep the enthusiasm up when you try to do good, but the bean counters and the accountants got in the way all the time. Uh, it's a different story now. But at the time, I'd sort of had enough and just said, you know, I'd spent 10 years trying to do this and the family was young. So the traveling was intense. Um, would be trade shows, you know, every few months somewhere on the planet. And it was just time to slow down a bit. So that's when we moved over to Ottawa and uh, started and kept doing her consulting, but uh, just for one organization. And then uh, I just uh, focused more on farming. So that, that's in a bit of a nutshell. And that was over a 10 year nutshell there, David. <laughs> There's a lot happened in between. And- yeah, because every time I used to talk to you, it's kind of like, where are you? Oh, I'm in India. Where are you? I'm in China. Oh, I've just finished planting. And then, you, you'd, be, then you'd be off visiting a, a, woolen, a woolen or cotton mill in India somewhere. So, yeah, you, you, spent, you, you got a few frequent fly points. I'd be on the combine talking with uh, Lululemon or Nike or Adidas and say, hold on, I've just got to get a call. Yeah, no, no, I think there's a lot of discussion about that. I was just talking to a few Nuffield scholars the other day, and and a lot of people are, you know, this is in a, when you and I were at uni, um, it was a big conversation then. This either beyond the farm gate, you know, downstream processing, connecting farmers with consumers, and it's just got, you know, that 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 conversation continues, doesn't it? So we were at uni in the late eighties, nineties, and it was a big topic then, or was it an emerging topic at least? That's showing our age, <laughs> mate. You want to keep that quiet. <laughs> but, you know, when I was listening to some um, the new Nuffield scholars that are coming out in 2023, it's the same stuff. So, they're, yep. they're, you know, it's this constant reach, you know, how can we how can we connect growing and farmers and what, you know, and consumers, et cetera, and, and, respond, and um, you know, the, uh, what do you call it, environmental and social responsibility in farming is becoming a big thing. Is it, Now, Canada tends to be from um, that side of the um, fence a little further down the road sometimes in these areas in Australia and sometimes not. So that whole idea of social and environmentally friendly and uh, responsible farming, I think it's ESG, I don't know the acronym, um, is there a big push for that, especially because you're so close to essentially big waterways like the St. Lawrence and those big holiday islands on the on the St. Lawrence, I think it's the St. Lawrence, all those beautiful holiday cottages and islands. So does does that come into how you farm in Canada, the, the impact of of um, waterway? Not really. Not really? No, I think it's a lot of smoke and mirrors, to be honest with you, mate. The, um, you know, I've been in this business for a long time. I, I did spend a lot of time uh, in 2014. I embarked on a project with H&M and Textile Exchange in developing the responsible wool standard, the RWS. And I learned a lot about how standards work. And what you touched on earlier is that, yeah, we're trying to, farmers are trying to get closer to consumers and consumers are trying to get closer to farmers, but how do you do it? And so 
everyone's dreamed up to having these standards. Well, uh, the, the brands are going to develop these standards for farmers to comply with, which are going to make the brands feel feel good and make sure that they're, they're covering their ass, basically, the old CYA, uh, and setting then protocols, which become very difficult for farmers to comply with. Um, and that's been a real, in- that whole thing is a real industry. Uh, and that's how the attempt, first attempt was to connect the whole thing because, you know, consumers, remember when we first started with, uh, iMarino was the brand that we created in the early 2000s. You'd go, you'd walk into Marks and Spencer or a, um, a, uh, supermarket in the UK and you'd pick up a package of milk or a package of cheese or something. And there were so many different standards labeled over that package. So the consumer would pick it mm-hmm. up, you just go, what on earth is that? And we still see a lot of this standard branding. The learning I had when I went through this out of the US, because it was, it was again, really appealing to me of trying to create that connection between farmer and consumer. And a really good standard should, all it should really do is tell the story of the farmer in a language that consumer can understand and give the consumer the reassurance that the farmer is actually doing that. But what we've seen with mm-hmm. a lot of standards is that it's for all these standards you see, someone owns them. But every time that standard is used, someone gets paid for it. It's a massive mm-hmm. industry, massive industry. So it's not about outcome. It's about selling more brands. It's just another brand. So it's about branding. It's not about actual outcome. Is that what you found out? Yeah. And I got fed up with it because, you know, again, I'm sitting in these huge conferences of people just patting themselves on the back, brands patting themselves on the back for having the next regenerative farming story that they're trying to beat against the next one. I'm certainly not going to name any brands, but it's just, it just gets depressing. One of the better, I will name one brand that I've, I've really been impressed with over the years, and that's Nike. Nike does so much behind their brand that nobody ever knows about. And they very rarely sub-brand. So when you buy a Nike item, you're buying a Nike item. It doesn't have any labeling, any, you know, any standards or anything attached to it. In most cases, they, what, what they say is that when you buy Nike, you give us faith as Nike that we're doing the right thing. Now they got caught out in the early nineties with soccer balls made in the wrong place and, you know, a few little things caught them out. Um, but they really learned that the customers have to have faith in the brand and not everything that gets attached to it. So, yep. you know, this whole connection of farmer to consumer, it's still something I firmly believe in, but we still haven't got it yet. You know, I could touch on the carbon industry and it's like, oh, here we go again. You know, I always, people ask me, what's carbon, what's, what's carbon sequestration all about? And I said, well, you know, cryptocurrency, don't you? I said, well, you can pretty much put them both together because you can't smell carbon, you can't see it, you can't touch it, but we're still selling it. So you think the car- the, the risk here, because, you know, I've, I've interviewed a few people about this, and obviously it's a topic of conversation at every ag event. Yeah. Um, the, the, the carbon um, offsetting and the carbon sequations um, and all those industries, you're – your concern is that those industries can end up with a lot of experience that you've actually found out through 20 years of working in the, the textile industry. They'll all come more about looking to do the right thing rather than actually doing the right thing. Well, how do we know that we're doing the right thing? I mean, you know, look over your farm, look over a couple of thousand acres 
And I've been recording every seed and every fertilizer, every drop of diesel that's gone onto our property for the last six years. Um, and I still can't work out if I'm sequestering carbon yet. And we've got some of the best technology you can get. Yeah. And, you know, there are better, there certainly are better models now, which are proving up concept. But, um, you know, I'm still tearing down trees, you know, and I'm doing it before the government stops us. But, you know, as I'm sitting in my excavator pulling up the next tree, it's like, it shocks me how little carbon is under the ground of a tree and how much carbon is above the ground. At some stage, that tree falls over, it does get recycled, but all that carbon breaks down and goes back into the atmosphere. But if you've ever dug up a wheat plant or a uh, pasture plant and see how far those roots get down compared to the leaves, why aren't we running more pastures with cows on top to make us get bigger and deeper root systems? So this goes into your experience with Continuum Textiles. Um, How's that influence the way you farm now so i'd say you're almost a full-time farmer now you taste you or yeah i am I, I, part-time helicopter pilot well i actually just did my solo pilot the, my first solo today so that's quite something uh, two buckets of water thrown on me for the experience but anyway it was fun and the helicopter didn't bounce much when i put it on the ground so that was really good anyway um yeah, I would say I'm a full-time farmer now. I'm still very passionate about um, still that connection, but it's been an exhausting road of 20 years. You know, I read the mental health, a lot of the mental health coming out in agriculture now. and oh, Sometimes I feel that it's just too hard. You know, It's, it's a tough business being a farmer. Um, it's even tougher when you try and start making change. And kudos to everybody that has, you know, gets out there and makes a shot at it. Because it isn't easy. Um, there's so much vested interest in what's going on. And I have spent a lot of time looking at connecting um, low certified, low carbon, I'll say certified, but low carbon soybean into potential opportunities into the car manufacturing industry because they use a lot of biopolymers in their dashboards mm-hmm. and all sorts of stuff. There's the want, but the actual process of making it happen, there's too much change. So segregation. The secondary agricultural production industry, you know, basically the factories, are so set up for economies of scale. Um, and to change it the smallest amount, I learned this in the wool industry when I was trying to you know, even isolate our own batches of wool so we know what we sent in would get out the other end. It's changing that mind, not only the mindset, but the infrastructure is just almost impossible. So, you know, I, uh, I still call it a lot of smoke and mirrors because to have real change, you know, to really give farmers what we need, you know, we're right now being paid 10 or 20 bucks a ton for carbon. Is that really going to make you go and buy the latest John Deere tractor so you can record everything that goes into the ground? Not a chance. Yeah. And is that the gap between, you know, as uh, we often see this in, in most things, we, we, as consumers, we tend to vote with our wallets. Ultimately, you're talking about your story with Levi's, you know, like Levi's obviously knew that five cents mattered. You know, like when people go and buy lit, I don't know how much it costs to make a pair of jeans. You can probably tell us, but people are going in and buying a $300 pair of Not much. Yeah. You would be shocked. So there, there's this, this is massive engine in the middle. The difference between, I don't know how much it costs to make a pair of jeans and the $150, $200 pair of jeans that, and sometimes $300 pair of jeans people are buying at the other end. 
Yeah. But at a but when it comes to us as consumers, obviously five cents invested in having sustainable cotton is is a bridge too far. But it doesn't often and how do you know that's getting back to the farmer anyway? Yeah. Like you explained, in Australia, we know we turn out to ag- every ag event and farmers are, I suppose, and like I'd imagine in Canada, are, are, are either super keen or not adverse to putting all these things in place to do the right thing and, you know, have better land and better outcomes, et cetera. And consumers want the same thing, but there's what you found through your experience, the, the machine between the farmer and the consumer is such an a beast in itself that those two signals actually don't actually get through or the actual behavior doesn't get through. We all want to do the same thing. We all want the planet to be a better place. Like no farmer is going to go out there and deliberately destroy our land. No consumer wants to have something that's going to, they're going to eat and they're going to be turning up to the hospital next day having a cancer program done. No one wants to do that. So, you know, but getting the message through the supply chain it's not transparent, that's for sure. You know, what I've looked, what I've learned, what I've seen now, David, is at the end of the day, if we could come up with a universal soil health measurement, that's all I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. So we could be farming in Cojanup or Shawville, Quebec, and we could put a measurement of good soil health. You know, we could take a measurement and it would tell us if our soil is healthy. And it didn't matter how you farmed, whether you use GMs, whether you use pesticides, whether you're organic, whether you're regenerative, it doesn't matter as long as your soil was healthy. Yep. And if we could come up with that measurement, all this other garbage would go away. But no one wants to do it because there's too many much. Inbe- and the technology is there to do it. There is many, many soil scientists, and we are starting to see soil health measurements come out now, but we have to get away from the practices and we've got to get to the outcome. Yep. And then if we are farming a soil that's healthy, then it's at least we know from a farming point of view that we're up, you know, we're going in the right direction. Then it's just back up to commodity markets and the weather. <laughs> but none of us wants to destroy soil. Uh, the no-till regenerative agriculture um, type practices, uh, you know, they're, they're obviously a massive deal in Australia because we have no rainfall generally and very poor soils. So um, it's a big deal. Is it the same in Canada or is it a very different way of, of, of managing soil? So, you know, when we were farming, you know, it was, you know, no-till was coming in probably just as we were leaving uni in a big way. Um, and now it's almost, you know, I'd say almost universally it's the only way. So soil health is a, has become a, a big deal in the last, oh, I don't know how many years that is, Stu, but a long time, um, 20 or 30 years. Um, so Canada, is it different or is it a different type of a? No, most farmers here, like if I, had, if I went to a meeting of 600 farmers, very few would have heard of the term regenerative or even know what it meant. Um, and what does it mean? I mean, but I can tell you those five or 600 farmers would be doing a pretty good job because they're still in business, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this whole regenerative thing, it's another, it's just another buzzword. It's another term. It's almost impossible to define. The concept is great and we all know the concept. You know, we've, I've been, since I've come here, I've, I've been really interested in the farming, that farmland that we've bought is that, you know, it's old beef and dairy farms that have never been worked, never seen pesticides, most of it never seen fertilizer, ever. So the organic matter of these properties we've been buying, 
you know, it was like five, six, sevens, like it's through the roof. Mm. That would have been different from what you're used to. Yep. Um, but the, the point is, is that we were no-till farming for years. Like I, I'm, I'd go in, level out, because they're pretty rough, like the fields are full of siding, you know, you couldn't drive very fast across them, that's for sure. Um, so we would put the, uh, the disc ripper through and you clean it all up and level it up. We're no-till farming for probably six or seven years now. And just getting back to one pass of pesticides and, you know, trying to preserve the, the soil health. Um, mm-hmm. Do you call that regenerative? No, because the soils weren't degraded in the first place. They're great. Yep. But we're probably practicing regenerative farming. But the point I need to make right now is that we've gone back to cultivating because no-till farming was sending us broke. And why is that? It's just the, uh, we weren't getting the utilization of our fertilizer. Um, we're leaving too much residue on top of the ground. Um, you know, we have a good earthworm population, but they can't bring it all down. Too much residue on the ground means it doesn't uh, dry out and heat up quickly enough. Mm-hmm. So there was shortening our growing season too much. We were getting uh, poor germination. So this year we've gone back to cultivating, best year we've ever had. So is that the difference between, again, that's a gap between, look, you as a farmer go, okay, I, I really, you know, I'm investing in this. I'm, I'm doing no-till. I'm, uh, I've got great soils, but the margins in soybean and corn are not at the level where I can actually make a living looking after my soil. Uh, yes, they are. I disagree with that. Totally. You know, um, because at the end of the day, what I'm doing now is preserving our soil health, our health of our business. And to me, that's what true sustainability is, right? I'm not mining my soil. Yep. Even though I'm cultivating, I am actually helping the soil rather than degrading the soil. The very important point I need to make, I'd like to make is that, you know, every farm is different. Mm-hmm. What I do on my farm is different to the fellow next door. And it doesn't mean he's better or she's better or I'm better. It gets back to how you run your own farm. And this is why I would love to see more of a universal type approach to a good soil health measurement and let us farm. You know, if your soil health is going down, well, at least you've got a gauge to be able to change it. And then there's plenty of tools in the toolbox there to go out and help you change it. So you think it's an oversimplification to say one's better than the other. So what you're saying is, you know, it's not no-till, it's not cultivation, it's, and it's not that black and white. It is, okay, what's best for, what's best for the farm, as in profit, because you have to be here. Otherwise. Yeah. Well, so does, Le- so does Levi's. So does every business we sell to, right? Yeah. So the first thing is you've got to make money. Yeah, you have to. Everybody has to. And so you've got to look after yourself. So it's part of this balance. In other words, so rather than being prescriptive, going this is the way farmers should farm, whether they're being cogent up, um, you know, Dubbo or or mm-hmm. a Shawville. It's just okay. This is what health is. Can you yeah. can you can you look after that in the while making money, please? Yeah, please do. And you know, as long as you guys can show us that your animals are happy and your soil is happy, drive on. Unfortunately, what we see with a lot of these prescriptions is in standards. They come down from people that have never been on a farm, never want to be on a farm. You would be shocked at the knowledge of these people making these standards. It, it just appalls me that they are even on these stewardship councils trying to tell us how to farm because they really have no clue. And here's a stat for you. 
um, in the US, uh, I don't know about Australia, but in the US, and I'm sure it'd be the same in Australia, 2% of the population has some contact with farming. Some contact. That doesn't, that's not the farmers, that's just some contact. Yeah. And you think farmers are going to have any say in Congress with not even 2% representation across the US? And that's a massive disconnect. And you probably find the same in Canada? Oh, same in Australia. So in Shawville, is it just like Australian town? So you mentioned before about mental health, which is, you know, it's a big deal and it's becoming a much bigger deal in Australia. Which is great. I'm really happy it's doing that for sure, yeah. But it's been, you know, people are becoming increasingly isolated, Stu. So farms have got big, like really big, right? But districts have got tiny. Yeah. Like I was out at a district the other day that I can remember we went to the odd BNS in um, in our youth. You can, re- you can remember that. I probably couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I think, I, I can't remember. I think there was in that district, there were seven farms left. Like they were massive, like they were, they, were, they, were, they were big farms and really successful businesses and wonderful people and everything, you know, the, 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 the businesses and the families were brilliant, but like there was no town left. Like there was no community, not because the people weren't community-minded, there's just not enough of them. Well, I think we're going to go through the next phase too, David, is that, you know, right, I, I was committed to um, keeping a modern fleet of equipment on our farms and. Um, you know, we're not a big farm, but we're not a small farm either. I think, you know, within 10 years, we were in the top 1% of turnover of farms in Canada. So mm-hmm. that's not a bad effort, but it doesn't mean we're a big farm because there's some very big farms here. But the point is, is that I think four years ago, I bought a John Deere S780 combine. It was $600,000 Canadian. Mm-hmm. That same machine now is about 950, touching on a million. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have to now increase my land by another 50% almost just to pay for that combine. And that's just the combine. You know, it's the machinery, the cost of machinery is unbelievable. And the only way that you can keep affording it is those farms have to get keep getting bigger. But where does it, where does it finish? Like I, I've just said, nope, we're just keeping a nice polished combine in the shed and this is going to last a long time now. But, you know, where does it finish? So those farms are going to have to get bigger again. So the small town challenges in Shawville, the same as they are in, in Cochinup, in uh, Wongan, in Dubbo, or well, not Dubbo's, I wouldn't say a small town. But- it's a little different here because uh, we do have subsidies. Like, you know, the beef, um, especially in Quebec, they are the, it's still a regulated dairy industry and do not get me started on that. Um the beef industry is not regulated, but highly subsidized. And, you know, I still get a, a reasonably good check of $50,000, $60,000 a year from the government. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being a farmer. Um, so, you know, th- there is assistance here for sure. And while it's good, does it help the industry move forward? I doubt it because, you know, there's a lot of practices here which I don't condone, and that's probably the same in many places as well around the world. But, uh, yeah, I get a little disheartened by uh, what we see here. But, again, then it's hard because, you know, again, you buy this new equipment and I'd had equipment turning up on my farm that not even the dealer knew how to operate. Yeah. I think it's no different. So my brother, you know, he's the same. He's got um, a few, a couple of um, new class headers. And I mean, they fly eight guys out every year from Germany to do the maintenance on them. So, oh, um, really? 
Yeah. So, I mean, him and all the other farmers in Western Australia, but they obviously yeah. do a tour around the wheat belt post harvest. Yeah. Uh, be- because, and even though, you know, so, yeah, like you're saying, the scale's becoming huge, which means, but the you're saying the subsidies uh, and the quotas are, are, are really supporting community a bit more than they are obviously in Australia. So ours is a little a bit more black and white here. You're either farming or you're not. You know, there's no middle ground. Yeah, no, and so the community, but it, I mean that's not going to stay forever either. So the communities are held up for sure because there still are a lot of smaller farmers, but they're getting older. You know, subsidies or not, you're still talking the same median age of farmers here getting close to sixty. And mm-hmm. there's no one coming back, you know. So we're becoming bedroom. Shawville is an hour out of the capital of Ottawa, so it's, it is fast becoming a bedroom community to Ottawa. Um, but when you get further out into like Saskatchewan and Manitoba and into there, you're seeing exactly what you're seeing in the wheat belt, you know, massive, massive farms uh, and communities drying up. But then at some stage, somebody's got to run the farm. Yeah, no matter how big you get these machines, you know, they still, it's going to be a while before we're going to see fully automated uh, 100 foot air seeders going through the field. That's for sure. So the community challenges are the same regardless of where we are in the world, really. Yeah, I think so. You know, and even on a smaller, smaller scale, David, in India, you know, I saw exactly the same issues of economic uh, mayhem, farm debt and suicide in India, this was 10 years ago, but they're only on five acres. Yeah, so there's a thing about capital here. So the cost of capital. So I was talking to a, um, again, a, a completely different, I was talking about this, um, the um, development of um, mechanised agriculture within China, actually. And they don't have, la- well, they traditionally didn't have land tenure, and they don't the same with India, but if they did, it was tiny. So they couldn't mechanise because their land, was so small they couldn't leverage that capital to buy a tractor or a plow or anything. So they had, you know, it was a so this 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 through line, like you're saying, the cost of doing business either means you're trapped, like you said, in India and China in these very small subsistence type blocks, or you have to go again to the whole other scale where you're having to buy out half the district. Um, and scale. Well, I think there's another thing that you might be overlooking too, David, is the fact that you've got political influence there as well. At a very, when I was with the um, uh, the leadership program um, in Australia, we went to Vietnam. We had a very intriguing interview with a Vietnamese agricultural minister there at the time, and I asked the question about, uh, you know, we don't see any tractors out there in the rice fields. We we'll see, still see the boys surfing behind the bullocks and, you know, having a good time, but there's no wheeled machines out there. And their response is really is we don't want tractors. For every tractor that comes in, it displaces 10 people, and those 10 people go to the cities. Mm. So you also have a significant policy influence on that as well. Obviously different here in the West, but, you know, India, they definitely don't want any more farmers in the city. That's for sure. Um, and Vietnam and China is much the same. Yeah, so, so like you're saying, that you know, the idea of consolidation, as much as it might make economic sense for those farm businesses, it, it doesn't make political sense to the leaders of those, those countries is what you're saying. No, but for us in the West, we have no choice. Yep. You know, I don't see in the next generation for me going back to the farm, it's, you know, it's just not going to be any money for it. So I might as well 
might as well sell it and go down to those very nice islands you're talking about, which is called the Thousand Islands and Gananoque on the, on the St. Lawrence, which is beautiful, um, and hang out there for a while. Fly helicopters. <laughs> so you think your daughters will go farming, Stu? Oh, I don't think so. Tato, are you going to go farming? Depends how she goes at school, I guess, but... Uh... <laughs> I heard she's getting quite good at helicopters. Is that right, Taylor? Yeah, she's not quite. She has flown one. Um, anyway, but uh, no, she's just. I'll keep her on the horses for the moment. <laughs> and cars. She's into car racing too, which is fun. So we'll see what happens. But the other thing I just want to touch on before we go, Stu. So, you know, you as a farmer, you know, you grew up a farmer. We went to, we did a bachelor of business together many, many years ago in the 80s, 90s. Um, you're a farm boy, but you've created these, you haven't pigeonholed yourself as a, you've stayed within agribusiness essentially, you know, within textiles, within corn and soybeans, but you've, you have just seeked business opportunities within this, um, within farming. Has there been any deliberate decision by that or, you know, so what went behind that decision making? Because you, you didn't just farm, you, you, but you stayed in agri. Yeah, it's, you know, it's what I really believe in. I've come from a very long line of farmers uh, in Australia. Um, I love the industry. Uh, and I think I'm very passionate about seeing change in the industry. We still need it. I mean, this connection, it is so disconnected between what we do at the farm and what is going on at consumer level. You know, and I'd love to see that change and I'll keep trying. I mean, my latest venture is looking at I had a very random conversation with a farmer in Ontario, just across the river, actually, and he has a malting plant that he built himself, which is absolutely amazing. He, uh, on his farm, he, he, he has an engineering shop which builds uh, high-end performance components for uh, racing motors. Like He employs eight people in a shop on his farm, and he sends these stuff, or even to Australia, he sends this stuff. And then he decided, well, he wants to start malting his own barley. So he built his own malting facility on his shop. So that's just amazing. Anyhow, so I started talking and it's been again a long time passion. I love drinking beer, still do. So, and we grew a lot of malt barley in Western Australia, of course. So it's right. I'm going to see if we can start growing malt barley here and selling it to breweries. Like there's 280 craft breweries within about a 500 kilometer radius here. So if you like drinking beer, come and visit. <laughs> so, you know, you've done textile business, you've done farming business. Now, this is now you're looking at the brewery business, but not only that, you've just now you've just started up a uh, a helicopter business, I hear. Um, well, again, I'll just go back to the brewery. It's all consistent, David. You know, it's all consistent with connecting to the consumer from the farm. The helicopter business. Helicopters have always fascinated me. I used to work in, in Western Australia teaching people how to get out of capsized helicopters when I moved to Perth. I did that for a few years. And that was pretty entertaining. People didn't like me very much, but that's what I used to do, teach you either sink or swim on that one. So, yeah, I just had an opportunity to learn how to fly and, and invest in some helicopters, which I've done with another partner. And uh, this, is a, this, is, this, this potential opportunity is someone out of the UK that's completely redeveloping the helicopter from ground up, completely vertically integrated in his own factory. Every nut and bolt, literally, he's building in his own factory, every bearing, building his own turbine. And that so appealed to me. And it's a very cheap helicopter too. It's like, okay, we'll do that. 
But it's just, you know, you got to have a hobby every now and again, and this is a bit of a sideline. So. And so back to the brewery. So tell me about that. So what's your dream? You know, well, what's, it's probably not a dream. I don't know if it's a dream or a vision yet, Stu. Tell me, tell me where, what we might, we might see in a few years with the, with the brewery. I have, I've always, um, one thing I loved about farming and coaching up, David, was that, uh, the use of livestock in a farm is a very important component in rotations. You know, you know, rotating sheep between cropping, um, breaks the soil. You put in a seed down a decent pasture. You can break weed infestations. Um, you can bring back a lot of benefit with, uh, livestock. And that's part of where this whole regenerative program is going, but you've got to love livestock. So my dream for my farm right now is we are, we currently run a herd of, uh, about 60 black Angus that we're going to be certifying or we're not certifying to anyone. We're just going to be marketing as grass fed because I have 10 million mm-hmm. people within four hours drive of my farm. And if I can't sell a few carcasses of grass fed beef, I'm not doing my job right. So, you know, I've got a big opportunity, but what I'd like to see is integrating our cattle with our barley program and rotating with our corn and soy. soy. So that is where I want to be. It's taking, it's still going to take me a long while to get there because there are so many moving components to making it happen, but I do have the skill set to do it. I just got to dig up a bit of energy. We're not getting any younger, but uh, (laughs) ultimately that's where I'd like to be. Grass-fed beef feeding off the barley that we're growing and malting and sending to the beers and you can have a, a beer from our farm as well as eating a nice steak oh there you go stew steak and beers there you go with good soil health all mixed good. in all good mixed in all right thanks joe i've got a couple of questions to finish off with mate the first one is a farming one and that's myths and i, I hope this doesn't go down for another whole hour but what do you reckon the, uh, you know, whether it be a Canadian or Australian myth, you know, people, you know, when you talk to someone, like you said, those 2%, non 2% who don't know anything about farming and they think, what do you think one of the great farming myths is in, in that you've experienced both in Australia and in Canada and the US? Well, they're all rich. I mean, well, when you look at it, we are very wealthy as far as we're very land wealthy. Um, but, you know, with that comes a huge degree of stress. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very high risk business. So, you know, people still see farmers as someone walking around here with overalls and a hay seed sticking out of their mouth. Um, yeah, that is a myth. Farming today is very complicated. It's high risk. It's, financial engineering um it's it's completely what people don't think it is and what do you think the difference is between working a farm for you Stuart, and running a farm business so how do you distinguish the difference between those two well both of them don't really mean anything i mean operating a farm business is what we're doing now um you know operating a farm business is you've got to be economically and financially very savvy you have to understand how a seed grows. You have to understand how an animal lives and basically prospers. Um, you know, it's a bit like flying a helicopter and operating a helicopter. Probably anyone can get in behind the controls and maybe keep it up. Actually operating it and keeping it above the ground and landing safely, that's a totally different ball game. 
It's a good analogy because mm-hmm. that's what we're that's what we're dealing with. You cannot just fly a farm these days. You have to operate it. And and that's what you're saying. It's not just about putting in your case soybean or corn in the ground. It's like you're saying that you have to be really superly financially switched on as savvy as well. Well, and that, but also you've got to be aware that the regulators are just breathing down your back. You know, mm-hmm. someone's going to be counting every liter of diesel we use on our farm pretty soon. Somebody's going to be counting already do the amount of pesticides we use, every grain of granular fertilizer you use. You know, that's compliance is not far away. Um, and as farmers, yeah. what we need to be doing is rather than be having to comply, we need to be self basically um, uh, disciplined and you know come up with a way that we can really demonstrate that we're looking after the land. And that's not subjectively. That's not seeing fat cows and good corn crops. That's an objective assessment to demonstrate categorically that we're looking after our land. That's what we need to do. Brilliant, Stu. And the last thing is, mate, when you are not farming, consulting on textiles, flying helicopters or thinking about breweries, how do you spend your time, Stu? You know, do you still love snow sports? Do you do other things? So how do you spend your free time now, Stu, when you're not farming? Oh, you know, that's, I actually drive a snow groomer uh, for one of the local hills here. And that's, you know, that's when the kids are in bed. So that's, that's at 10 o'clock at night till uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. There's a bit of free time for you. No, I, I do try. I still ride. So uh, my daughter and I, um, my daughter's a very good eventer, so I'm bringing up a young horse. Um, so I, I still ride one or twice, once, once or twice a week. Um, I restore cars. I bought a Holden Ute. I have one of the only Holden Utes up in Canada. Um, <laughs> so I have a fleet of Australian vehicles up here, so I still tinker in the workshop. Um, you know, my children are growing up. They have their own lives now. So, you know, um, you make you have to make free time. You know, I'm flying, learning to fly at the age of 52. That's quite the ordeal, but that's, you know, I've got, I make time for it. You have to make time for yourself because if you don't, no one else will. You know, on a farm, everything's asking you all the time, whether it's machinery, whether it's livestock, every second of the day you can be asked to do something by something and so you have to be disciplined in carving out time for yourself um you know and obviously i'm going through a separation right now and obviously that is a casualty of part of who i am obviously i don't sit still um but you need to carve out time for your family too you know i did try but it's just the way it is so you know i think that's a big discipline farmers it's too easy just to go back and get on the tractor or get on the combine or get on the motorbike or whatever you want to do but uh, if you love it, that's great. But make sure it doesn't become a habit. Yeah, definitely, Stu. Well, I think that's a brilliant place to end on. Thank you very much for um, letting me have your evening. Hopefully, you've already had dinner. And I, um, I don't know. We're not. We're not. We're not in snow season now, so you're not going to now go and start grooming uh, ski slopes tonight. No, I don't so. think I'm going to do that. I might do that a few nights a week. That was just a bit of sport, just to say I could have done it. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Everything yeah. in balance, David. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too, mate. And um, thank you very much for giving us your time. And I'll let you get to bed now. And I better get on with my day. And um, we'll talk to you next time. Mate. Very good. Thanks, Jude. Look forward to it. Thanks, David. Thanks again for listening to Boots Off Log On. Our aim with this podcast is to give you access to the best minds in agricultural business and to help your farm business thrive. 
So if you have any feedback or suggestions for the podcast, including people you believe I should interview, please email bootsofflogon at agrimaster.com.au. If you like this episode, please take time to share it on social media or even better, directly with at least one friend today. And take the time to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it really helps us reach more farm businesses like you. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster farm business management software and services, you can find us at agrimaster.com.au. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.